Well, can you believe it's almost December? It's hard to believe, isn't it? We're reminded of it everywhere we go, right? Every time we turn on the TV, we go and drive somewhere. I've seen the decorations up already. Every Walmart trip, while Walmart looks a bit, a bit different this year, we're still reminded when we go there and other places that it's Christmas time. We're reminded of it every time we, we turn on the TV. There are lots of Christmas movies and Christmas specials uh, that we see uh, being televised and, and uh, we're, we're, uh, everyone's letting us know that those are coming. Lots of classic movies already playing great stories told each and every year through those movies and through uh, the books that we read. Stories like It's a Wonderful Life, the story of George Bailey. We watch that every year. Uh, around Thanksgiving. We've already watched it this year, and uh, many of you are familiar with that story. George Bailey thinks he's wasting his life away in Bedford Falls, only to, to find out that he is making a huge impact in the lives of so many. There's a Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, a story. This story has had many adaptations, as you know, but the original is the, the story of a a miserly, miserable old sinner named Ebenezer Scrooge who is reminded of the dangers of being mastered by money and the joy of being benevolent to others. Great stories. There are a lot of great Christmas stories, stories told by a family of Christmases from long ago and uh, stories that we read about and see each year Great love stories around Christmas, stories about being thankful for what you have and for being benevolent with what you have been given. We love a good story, right? Well, this morning we're going to look at a great story for the next few weeks. Great Christmas story. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 1. Yes, I said Matthew. We're taking a break from Luke for the rest of this year. For the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about the first and greatest Christmas story. And while I know many of you have, have heard this story so many times that you've lost count over the years, there's always new truths that we can learn from this old story. And my prayer this morning and in the upcoming weeks is as we meet together for the next few weeks and look through uh, Matthew's account of this story, I, I pray that uh, you would discover new truths from this great old story. Our Christmas series this year is Matthew's Christmas story. And today we're going to look at a passage that often gets overlooked when people are reading through Matthew, and it's the list of names at the very beginning. Jesus' genealogy, many just breeze through that section of Scripture, uh, thinking there's, there's nothing much to, to glean from that, but we're going to learn that that is not true this morning. There is a lot that we can learn from Matthew 1, 1 through 17. Those of you all who read ahead this past week, as we let you know what we're going to be discussing the week prior, you were probably wondering what I'm going to do with this, with this passage of Scripture. And uh, 
we're going to find that there are some glorious truths to learn from this first section, from this list of names when we learn about Jesus' royal family. Lots of wonderful truths that we learn about the Lord Jesus Christ from this list of names. There have been a number of times when I've been asked by students from the, the church, both high school and, and college age, to write a, a letter of recommendation for them into college or, or seminary. I've even been asked to be a reference on a job application. And when I, I write those letters or when I receive those phone calls from those employers about that particular student, I will often only share information about that person that is related to that position. For example, when interviewed by a, a, a potential employer, I won't tell the employer every single detail about that person's life as if I had those things to begin with. But uh, I will only share information that relates to the job. When I share information to the school, same goes for the, the, the schools that call as well. I'll only uh, share information that's important to that school about that particular student. Well, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, Matthew is trying to convey a specific message about the Lord Jesus Christ. He has a specific purpose in mind for sharing what he does. He doesn't give us every single detail about Jesus here. In fact, he re leaves a lot out, but he gives us what we need for us to know what he wants for us to know. And what he shares with us in this list of names is truly amazing. This morning, we are going to look closely at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 and draw out several important truths that we learned from it. Let me uh, begin by reading this passage to you. I'm a glutton for punishment this morning. I've already read through one list of names. I'm going to do it again, okay? So pray for me. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nahashan, and Nahashan the father of Salmon. These names will be on the quiz, by the way, okay, at the end, so be ready. Verse 5. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of 
Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mothan, and Mothan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. All right. Now, why do we have all of this? I'll tell you, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And he is writing for the purpose of showing his readers that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is the promised one who has come to save. He is the victorious king who will return. And he knew that the Jews at this time were insistent on the fact that if anyone was going to be presented to them as being someone important, he better have the pedigree to prove it. Now, why did it matter to the Jews who your dad or granddad was? Well, there are a number of reasons. Scripturally, the first reason we find in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, a knowledge of ancestry was, was needed so that one could know where they were supposed to live. Remember in the book of Joshua, after entering the land of Canaan, the land is divided up into tribal units. So it is essential that you knew what tribe you were in so that you knew where you were supposed to live. Another reason pedigree was important in the Old Testament was to know who the priests were. When the Jews began coming back from Babylonian captivity, many were claiming to be priests. So it was very important that they could prove it by pedigree because God was very serious about who the priests were. If anybody was going to try and assume the role of the priest who was not from the tribe of Levi, they could be in grave danger from the household of Aaron, right? So when the Jews came back from captivity, they had to prove who they were, what family they were in by pedigree before they could assume a role like the priest, a very, very important role. And this, this lineal identification continued on into the first century. While tribal division of land had ceased by this time, the, the, the Jews at this time still had a, a thorough knowledge of their lineage. And we know this to be true because individuals throughout the New Testament are either identified by or even make mention of their pedigree. For example, Paul lets the Christians at Philippi know that he is from the tribe of Benjamin. 
And we learn in the Christmas story that Mary and Joseph are traveling from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. And the reason why is because there is a census that is taking place. In those days at this time, people were, were required to report to the area of their ancestors to be registered for tax purposes. So Mary and Joseph, they, they return to Bethlehem because Joseph is in the family of David, as we learned here in Matthew's account. So pedigree was very important in the Old Testament for tribal location and for priestly identification and was important in the New Testament for tax purposes at this time. Another reason genealogy was meaningful to the Jewish people in the first century is because it told them a lot about that individual. And we understand this to, to an extent, being Southerners, right? Have you ever seen a, a, a kid acting in a certain way and you ask, who's, who's that boy's daddy? Or who's that, who's that girl's mom, right? Tells a lot about a person even, even more so for, for Jews at this time. For this reason, Matthew establishes Jesus' pedigree in the first 17 verses. He gives this list to reveal to his audience who Jesus is and the Spirit of God through Matthew is revealing something important about the work that Jesus has come to accomplish. So this morning, we're going to discuss this, this passage that Matthew gives us here. There are four key truths that I want you to see this morning about Jesus' genealogy that, that makes the passage here so amazing. Point number one, we learn from this list of Jesus' ancestors here that he is the promised one. He is the promised one from old. He is the Messiah. And we're going to camp out here for just a minute because, again, this is, this is one of the major points that, that Matthew is, is making here and the reason he begins his, his account in this way. Notice he makes the point at the beginning of this passage and at the end of this passage that Jesus is the Christ. They serve as bookends on this list here. He begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In verse 17, he refers to Jesus again as the Christ. You see right here at the beginning, Matthew affirms that Jesus is the Christ, which is another way of saying he is the Messiah. He is the one who has been sent by God to bring salvation. He is the promised one from the Old Testament. Not only does he say that, but he proves that by listing Jesus' royal lineage here. He makes the point in verse 1 that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, why does he single these two individuals out. Well, believers, this should be obvious to you, shouldn't it? Matthew is showing that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that were made to these two individuals. Let's first look at David. What was promised to David? Remember 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. I have it up on the screen. It's in your scripture reading. 
Listen to the promise made to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, so God promised to put on David's throne a son who would rule forever and ever. And you know and I know that wasn't ultimately fulfilled in Solomon, right? Solomon did sit on the throne, but not forever and ever. As glorious and majestic as his rule was, his rule came to an end. That was not the fulfillment of that promise. It was also not fulfilled in any of the other kings in this dynasty. They reigned for a time and then they're, they're, they died and their power was transferred to someone else. No, the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 is Christ. He is God's forever king. Matthew also says that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of Abraham. Matthew is reminding us here of the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that God made to Abraham as well. He is the fulfillment of the substitution provided on Mount Moriah when the ram was caught in the thicket bush and substituted for Isaac. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is the perfect substitute and sacrifice for Jews and Gentiles alike for us, folks. It is also through Christ that all the nations of the earth are blessed. He is the blessing to the nations. He is God's forever king. So Matthew is, is showing his audience here by referring to Jesus as the son of David and son of Abraham. And then by listing his lineage from Abraham to David and from David to Joseph, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the, the fulfillment of the promises made to these two men. He fulfills this promise, these promises by his, his lineage and through his person and work. Now get this, this is very important. Jewish people today have lost record of their tribal ancestry. They have. They can't trace it. It's completely gone. There is no one today who can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're descendants from Judah or descendants from Benjamin or any of the other tribes. That has been lost. Not true of Christ. No one in the first century would have, have disputed, challenged, questioned his lineage. It was, it was verifiable. There are some Orthodox Jews today who are still waiting for a Messiah to come. Many have just dismissed that altogether, many Jewish people now, but there are some still waiting for the Messiah to come. They've rejected Christ. They're looking for another. Get this, this is key. If anyone comes along today claiming to be the Messiah, being a descendant of Abraham and, and, and from the tribe of, of Judah, anyone comes claiming to be from the tribe of Judah, they will never be able to prove it. Jesus is the last verifiable claimant to David's throne. No one else could ever 
come along and lay any believable claim just to that genealogy. That's important. There's something else here that's extremely important, very interesting about Jesus' lineage here. I've shared this with you in the past. In two of the four Gospels, we've read them this morning, we have a, a, a genealogy. Jesus' lineage is, is given in Matthew's account and Luke's account. Matthew gives his lineage in descending order, starting with Abraham and ending with Jesus. And Luke gives it in ascending order, beginning with Jesus and going past Abraham and all the way back to Adam. Matthew gives us the royal line of Jesus through Joseph. Luke, I believe, gives us the bloodline of Jesus through Mary. Now, some argue with this. They argue with the lineage in Luke being the bloodline through Mary because Mary is not mentioned. Instead, Luke mentions Jesus' father, Joseph, again. But the problem with saying that Joseph's lineage is found in Luke is that the genealogy is different from Matthew. I believe the reason Mary is not mentioned in Luke chapter 3 is because she's already been designated the mother of Jesus in several instances in Luke already. So it's already implied here. And it is usual practice when listing one's genealogy to mention the name of the father. So Luke mentions Joseph here, even though he has already made it clear that Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. And he gives us then the name of Joseph's father-in-law, Heli. So what, what Luke is, is saying in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, is that Jesus is the son of Joseph, the grandson of Heli, Joseph's father-in-law, or Mary's father. Got it? So Matthew gives the royal line in Matthew 1. Luke gives the bloodline in Luke 3. And if you want more reading on this, I have an article out there you can take home with you from, from John MacArthur on this when you leave today. It's on the table at the front where you picked up your bulletin. The royal line always passed through the father. So in Matthew's gospel, he shows us the legal descent of Jesus as king of Israel. Now, the reason I say again legal descent is because Jesus had no earthly father biologically, right? Joseph was his father legally, but not his father biologically because he was miraculously conceived and virgin born. So while Jesus is the, the legal heir to the kingdom through his father, he did not have ties to most of those individuals by blood in Matthew's list. He did not have ties biologically. He did, however, have ties to David, we see in Luke 3, through his mother. David had a number of kids. One of those was Nathan. Luke shows us in this list that Mary was a descendant of David through his son Nathan. So Jesus had blood ties to David through Mary, had royal ties to David legally through Joseph. You still with me? Okay. Follow me. I'll tell you why this is important. As we read about the royal family, of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. There's a name that doesn't stand out to many, but it should, and that is the name Jeconiah, aka Coniah, aka Jehoiakim, okay? In Jeremiah 22, verses 28 
and verse 30, we're told this. Look at this up on the screen. Is this man, Coniah, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Now, the person, again, called Coniah here, also referred to in some of your translations as Jehoiakim, is Jeconiah. The name Jehoiakim is another name for Jeconiah. So he's talking about Jeconiah. Look at verse 30. Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Now, folks, this is a problem. If the covenant God made with David promises a future and forever king and Jeconiah's offspring is cursed, as we're told here, and, and none are allowed to sit on the throne of David, then how in the world can we have a future Messiah? Because Jesus is virgin born. He's not an offspring of Jeconiah, he is legally in the royal line, but he has no biological ties to him. So Jesus has no biological ties to the royal line, yet he is legally a royal, and he is also still a descendant of David by blood through his mother. Is that not incredible? That's what I call perfect fulfillment here. Isn't it incredible how God has guarded every single detail? He has. It's amazing. Jesus is the Messiah no matter how you slice it. He is. And that's what Matthew is, is telling us here. We also learn in Matthew's account, the very beginning, that Jesus is truly God. That's point number two. Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is truly God. Look at verse 16. Matthew says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So while Jesus is, in a legal sense, the son of Joseph, he only has ties biologically to his mother. He was miraculously conceived without Joseph's involvement. And this miraculous, extraordinary conception points to Jesus' divine origins and character. Now, Matthew is going to expand upon this toward the end of, of this chapter. We'll look at more at that next week. He and others indicate that this point, that Jesus was miraculously conceived, it points to the fact that Jesus is divine, that he is God, that he is the, the eternal son of God who left the riches of heaven, came to earth, and in a miraculous and extraordinary way, he was miraculously conceived. He was born to live among us. And I believe the miraculous conception is, is hinted at here when we are told by Matthew that Jesus was born of Mary. Look at it closely. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, and that whom there, that word is feminine singular, of whom, from Mary, Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. John MacArthur says, the pronoun whom is singular, referring to Mary alone. 
The unusual way in which this final entry is phrased underscores the fact that Jesus was not Joseph's literal offspring. He is unique, miraculously conceived, virgin born, truly God. He is the Christ, God the Son, heaven sent, God's man, his Messiah. Not only does Matthew show us in this passage that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, divine. He also shows us in this passage that he is truly man. He is truly God. He is truly man. Verse 16, again, Jesus was born. Jesus was born. Now, when we think about the virgin birth, we normally think, Miracle, right? That's what causes us to think miracle. Many think that the virgin birth is a sign of Jesus' deity, but follow me here. That's really a sign of Jesus' humanity. What's truly miraculous is not the virgin birth, it's the virgin conception, okay? It's what we discussed in the previous point. Jesus' conception here is, is the miracle. Once Jesus is conceived, he really goes on to have a natural, normal childbirth minus the manger and the animals, right? And I know I'm splitting hairs here. When people talk about the miracle of the virgin birth, they're referring to the entire process, right? Him being miraculously conceived and born of a virgin. But it's important that we make this distinction. Jesus was truly human. He was born just like you, just like me. He was born. He was in the bloodline of Mary. So the fact that he doesn't have a biological father reveals his deity. The fact that he has a biological mother reveals his humanity. So, so Matthew shows us here through this entire process, through his conception that, that, that Jesus is divine and through his birth that he is one of us, that he is a man. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Matthew also shows us by listing out Jesus' royal line here that Jesus is Savior. That's the last point. Jesus is our Savior. He's our promised one. He's truly God, truly man, and he is our Savior. This list here is, is designed to remind us of the work that Christ came to do. He is the redeemer of all kinds of people, of women, of men, Jew, Gentile, all kinds and types of people. Have you ever looked at the genealogy of Jesus? You find people like Abraham, right? And David, good men. But you also have men like Ahaz, who have no redeeming qualities whatsoever. You have a guy like Judah, Remember Judah? Judah, while like Reuben, he talked his brothers out of uh, killing Joseph, it was Judah's idea to sell him into slavery. Nice gesture there. Genesis 37. Judah also had more problems later on, the very next chapter. You have Tamar mentioned in verse 3 of Matthew's list. In Genesis 38, we learn that she was Judah's daughter-in-law who disguised herself and prostituted herself out to her own 
father-in-law, Judah, prostitution, incest, and out of that sexually immoral act, she has two twins, Perez and Zerah. And Perez is in the royal line of Jesus. You have women like Rahab, a prostitute. Many have rushed to her defense over the years in certain commentaries. And, uh, but this is how the Holy Spirit describes her, refers to her in, in Joshua chapter 6, verse 25. A woman at best with questionable character, a Gentile. She becomes a key player in God's kingdom story. She's in the line. You also have Ruth. Some of you are like, well, what's wrong with Ruth? We, we studied about Ruth, right? She was a Moabite. Remember the story of the Moabites? Lot's daughters get him drunk. They laid with him. And the oldest has a son from her father, and she names him Moab. He becomes the father of the Moabites. Ruth was a Moabite. She was from a group that was formed, born of incest. What on earth are they doing in the line of Christ? Notice Matthew mentions Solomon here, but notice how he mentions him. Verse 6, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Why didn't he just say Bathsheba here? Because Matthew is emphasizing the scandalous way in which Solomon's parents got together. Remember, David got Uriah's wife pregnant and then tried to cover it up by having Uriah killed, adultery, murder. There's more that I could, I could draw out from this list, but you get the point, right? But Matthew shows us here through this list that our God is a redeeming God and that Jesus is our Savior. He has come to right these wrongs. He has come to fix our mess, to restore and redeem that which we have broken, to restore this broken, messed up lineage in a broken and fallen people. It reminds us here that our God is at work through the acts of the righteous and through the acts of the wicked. He is at work through the faithfulness of Abraham and through the failures of David. He is at work through godly kings like David and Josiah and Hezekiah and through godless leaders like Rehoboam and Ahaz. Through the acts of the patriarchs, through the acts of godless kings and harlots, God brings Christ into this world to restore and redeem it and to bring sinful individuals like these in Matthew's day and like you and me back into a right relationship with him. That is the Christmas message. That's what Christmas is all about. With this list, Matthew reminds us that the good and the not so good, both the moral and the wicked, all need saving. Believers, a Savior has been provided. Amen? A Savior has come to bring life to those who believe on him. So as Christmas approaches, let us think on the gospel. That is the message of Christmas. Let us be reminded throughout this Christmas season of the fact that 
Jesus is the promised Messiah, the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us, the one who came from heaven to earth, who took on flesh, lived among us, died for us, and rose in order to raise us. If you're here this morning, or you're listening online, and you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, I pray God would open your heart up to this Christmas message. In this passage, and in the passage we will look at next week, Matthew tells us there's a time in history when the eternal Son of God stepped into the world he created, took on flesh, and become, became one of us. While he had every right to remain right where he was in the state he was in, while he didn't have to do anything, Christ chose to do everything for us. He humbled himself by becoming one of us. He emptied himself becoming one of us. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul tells us he laid his life down. He took the punishment of sin that we deserve, and he did all of that so that we might have life. If you're here, if you're listening online, you're not trusting in Christ alone for salvation, I pray you would this morning. I pray you would make this decision to turn from your sin, run to Christ, cling to Christ, place your faith and trust in Him alone for salvation and be saved. Let's pray together.